0: Hello, welcome to Gunfighter Cast, episode number 162. I'm Daniel Shaw, and I'm here with Varg Freeborn. How are you doing, Varg?
1: I'm doing good. How are you doing, Daniel?
0: I'm doing good, too. What are we going to talk about today?
1: We're going to talk about functional fitness and what that means and how that pertains to the goals of the self-defense-minded individual.
0: I'm glad we came up with this topic for today because I'm about to embark on a... Fitness program designed by the one and only Varg Freeborn, who is going to make me bigger, stronger, faster, and and much more awesome. I think when you say more awesome, it, it assumes that I'm already awesome. I'm not so sure about that, but I'm going to try to increase my awesomeness to, from whatever state it is right now to a higher level.
1: Absolutely, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be cool.
0: So when when somebody says functional fitness, we hear that a lot in, in the military, in law enforcement, in uh, around you know, defensive minded people in circles talking about, oh, man, he's just, he's not very fit because he didn't have any cardio or he's this and that, or, you know, he's he's overweight and just, you got to get functionally fit. When we're talking about self-defense, the muscles, the things that we need to be able to do in a fight, before a fight, after a fight, surrounding of the fight type scenario, what does that really mean, functional fitness, or what should it mean? Because it, Your definition and my definition may be different than what some things we see out there on the internet because of our own experiences.
1: Yeah. So as a coach, I look at the term functional fitness and I'm not real fond of that term in the first place, because what we're actually talking about is, you know, there was this world where we had people who worked out in the general public and just general fitness. And then we had sport specific athletes. And so anything that was functional training would in the beginning just be applied to sport specific demands on an athlete for whatever sport they were doing. And then we got this idea that we should train the average individual for the sport of life or, you know, the demands of life. And then you don't know what to call it because do you call this person an athlete? And of course that's what CrossFit does. Everyone's an athlete now. But then do you call life a sport? That doesn't really apply. So you can't say sport specific. So we have to say functional. But in reality, anything you do that has a goal, that has an application in real movement and real tasks that you'll do in the course of your daily life or your work or your sport has a functional purpose to it. So it's fitness that should have the goal of increasing your capabilities within the likely demands of whatever job or sport or tasks you're going to face. That's actually the way I look at it definition-wise. And then in designing the program, we start there. And then the program's built from the ground up looking at those goals. So if we're
0: looking at self-defense, you know, your average armed citizen out there who may have to fight, wants to live longer, wants to get healthy wants to uh, you know be able to, to fight, be able to fight with a handgun, be able to fight unarmed, be able to defend themselves, defend people they love. The SWAT officer out there, the military guy, I think a lot of these are very similar in what they should be working on because they're all kind of the, the same application in maybe a very widely different context. What should they be really focusing on as far
1: as fitness? Well, to start that out, I think I'll point out a common problem or a common trap or pitfall that most people fall into. And they get pocketed into one specific stimulus and adaptation loop, right? So anything that we train, we're going to introduce a stimulus to the physiological, you know, demanding tasks and all those things. The stimulus that's going to promote adaptation in the body to make you stronger, faster, more capable of doing things, have myelinated neural pathways for a certain movement. These are all adaptations to training. We get stuck on doing one thing or two things. So a big duo in this industry would be I shoot a lot and I do jujitsu. But you're missing strength training in particular. You're missing endurance training that is beyond what you're finding on the mat, which is necessary. You know, you're missing speed or burst or agility training. So there's all these other adaptations that you'll need in a fight that you're not addressing in your training program. So if you look at a training program from the ground up, jitsu should be a part of it and shooting should be a part of it. And they have to be considered into it because re- they take away from your resources and that limits how much you can do and still have good recovery. So we, have to, we only have a finite amount of resources we can spend physiologically and still get decent recovery every week. And we're not just running ourselves into the ground. So you spend a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, and have a general training program. Another approach is you can take six weeks, eight weeks, or 12 weeks and just go hardcore strength program. And then take that bigger, stronger chassis into an engine program and build your endurance and your cardio. And now you're bigger, stronger, can go longer and faster. And then you take that into skills training. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I prefer that method of training myself, but people don't have the patience to shut off the other stimulus, the other adaptations that they want just to build one aspect and then build another aspect and then uh, like building blocks put on top of that. So those are two different approaches that you can use.
0: Well, with those cycles right there, you know, maybe you do the strength phase and the engine phase and all that, but you're not stopping doing those when you go on to the skill building phase, you still have to do maintenance on those. Right. And there's only a finite amount of time out there for each person. And depending on their lifestyle, if it's anything like me, you don't have a whole lot of time for much of anything other than something work-related in most cases. How does somebody balance that, you know, the getting started in that? Because it seems like, man, this is going to be a lot of work. You know, how could, how could you dip your toe into this cycle training?
1: Well, again, there's two approaches for that. You, you can go through an experienced coach who knows both the art and science of programming. And should have quite a bit of experience in tool sets outside of just one method. So, for example, you don't go to a CrossFit coach to learn how to be an overall great fighter and, and healthy human being. You don't go to a powerlifting coach to learn how to be a great runner, right? So, someone that's going to coach GPP, general you know, fitness, uh, physical preparedness. That is someone that's going to have a broad set of skill sets and And the coach that has experience in multiple methods so that they can apply multiple methods to you and periodize them and program them in sequences that's going to benefit you without losing too much sacrifice in one aspect or the other while you're building other ones up. So sometimes you do. If I put someone into a strength phase, you're going to get slower on your runs. You're going to get slower and you're going to get less winded when you do more cardio, but you're going to be less strong, right? So like you're going to trade something off all the time. But then when we hit the maintenance phase, when we are at the strength level, we're at the chassis level foundation that we want to be at. Then you go into a maintenance phase and you begin to bring all those levels up as much as you can. Balancing that, how do you balance that? Without a coach, you just have to listen to your body and understand that, you know, fatigue and recovery are the most important parts of those cycles. And if you don't have recovery built in, then you're not going to have any progress whatsoever. So once you have that done, then you just look at how much am I doing of each thing? Am I getting slower on my runs? So I need to pick that up, but you have to drop something else down. When you're at a, a work capacity level that you feel like, man, I'm working really hard but I feel good throughout my days. That's a level you want to stay at. We always tell people that you work out to feel good. You don't work out to feel terrible. And so if you're going in and just crushing yourself every day and every day you wake up and you just, you're sore and you're dragging and you, you feel tired, but you, your bravado and, and your discipline is super strong. So you push yourself into the gym. What are you accomplishing? If somebody it's not very sustainable, No. And if somebody, if you're training to like defend yourself, if somebody gets a hold of you on any given day, they're just going to wipe the floor with you because you're worthless. Like you've spent yourself. You don't want to work out to that level every day. If that's what you're training for is to be ready to defend yourself, then why put yourself out on the street as a wet rag every day because you've spent yourself in the gym? So let's break this down fight wise and see if we find any
0: any common factors among the different types of fight we should get into as far as, as far as muscle groups and things to work on. It's where we should be strong, where we should be fit. Now, obviously it'd be easy to throw a whole, you know, blanket statement over this and say, you know, your whole body should be stronger, faster, more endurance. You should have good cardio, all that stuff. But when we're talking about years ago, you know, I'm not a huge guy and uh, I've I've tried to get big a few times in my life and and I've tried a a lot of different techniques from, from people who had a lot of size and, and worked out really hard. And, And they seemed like they knew what they were doing, and I would listen to them, and I would do what they say for like six months, and and I end up gaining like five pounds over six months, and just like, this is not worth the work, and the money, and the crap that I'm drinking and everything else, to the supplements and everything I'm taking, like, I'm not getting enough ROI on this thing, so it doesn't make sense, so I end up stopping. But I've always worked hard on having strong legs and really good grip strength, and I've always had very strong legs and grip strength. A couple of years ago, I was at OTOA. One of the SWAT officers that, that I was training with or was in one of my classes the day before was talking to this huge swole dude, old guy, man. He was like probably 60 years old. He introduced me to him because I was saying something on the range about having grip strength and, and leg strength. And he was like, hey, this guy right here, This he was, in my, he was teaching my class that I was in. And he was telling me about how grip strength and leg strength were, were extremely important. I was like, look, I don't know hardly anything about fitness. I just know what I've been doing for most of my life from the military to now. I was like, but those things have served me. He's like, no, it's the same thing I talk about in my SWAT PT or whatever he teaches a class for for law enforcement all over the country and stuff for, for fitness for, for SWAT guys and, and police officers and, and military folks and things like that. And he was like, grip strength and leg strength are incredibly, uh, are one of the most important things for you to have out there in a fight. So I find that those come across for me, whether I'm in a – a fight where it's unarmed, or I'm using a handgun, or I'm using a rifle, you know, training, whatever I'm doing, the grip strength and leg strength are incredibly important. There's always something that I'm doing that's using those two things. And I find that I'll have this huge muscle dude that's been in the gym picking up heavy stuff and putting it down for like ever, and he'll have some kind of problem with his rifle, and I'll go fix it in no time because I have more grip strength than this monster of a guy here on the range. It's pretty strange. It happens to me so often, like almost every single class. Why is that? Why, why is the leg and the, uh, the grip strength so important?
1: Well, first of all, I agree with that, but I would just add posture for me. My big triad is posture, legs, and grip. It's because that's your foundation of everything. Everything that you do in a fight comes from your legs and your posture. And if you don't have strong legs and strong posture, your ability to fight is weakened dramatically and anytime you lock up with someone creating force absorbing force changing directions under under load all of those things have to do with the strength of your foundation which is your posture and your legs and then getting a hold of someone and actually grappling a lot of that is grip strength the ability to you know wrist tie someone or arm drag somebody or be able to get subject under control with any of the number of control tactics that are taught in police academies and things like that so much of that is reliant on grip strength so when we train leg strength posture and grip i think it's incredibly important that's why i'm such a huge proponent of farmer's carries if your training program doesn't have heavy carries in it you're not doing it correctly like I don't care what you do, and especially unilateral carries. I I got that from uh, a coach, Travis Mash. It's just I've always done uh, bilateral carries where I have two weights in each, you know, one in each hand and I carry at the same time. But the effect on the hip health and the hip strength of having a unilateral carry is huge. But during that process, your grip is holding that weight. And I, I like to use I use the rogue carry handles so they get this big, fat grip. And that just forces your hand to like really work for that grip. And uh, I'll do 40 and 50 yard carries at a time. So I'll do like four sets of 40 or 50 yard carries. And it's your posture, your legs, and your grip all getting hit at the same time. And it's just phenomenal, you know, for functional training. It really does a lot. That and any type of barbell movement that is based on posture, you know, and those things are going to transfer over to fighting huge. I think that... Anyone that spends like all their time in the gym, on the mat, on their back, you know, doing jujitsu and they're not strength training and doing carries and and doing barbell movements, you're doing a huge disservice to yourself.
0: So back to what I I started to say before, I'm breaking it down fight to fight. So if we're in an unarmed fight, me and you are throwing down, Varg, we're mad at each other. We're angry because you forgot to press record on a podcast or something and, and we're fighting. Actually, that was my fault recently. We're upset, we're throwing down. What muscles are we using when we're we're grappling, we're throwing blows, we're
1: hitting each other? What what are we using a lot right then? Well, you're going to use everything. You're going to use everything. But again, your foundation is either going to be in your legs and your posture or just your posture. For example, if we're standing up and we're either clenched or we're throwing blows, your legs and your posture are involved primarily to make that happen. If you go to the ground, your legs are taken away to a certain extent. You can still use them to sprawl and press your weight down, and you can still use them to maneuver escapes or or submissions. But the primary mover becomes your posture at that point and your back strength and just being able to deal with you know, arching and, and holding your posture. Because if, if an opponent breaks your posture, it takes your strength away immensely. And it's one of the mm-hmm. things. That's why if somebody does a rear naked choke and they – uh, push the hips forward by pulling your legs back and breaks your posture mm-hmm. into a very deep arch you feel the strength just go out of your body like you can't even do half of the you probably would bench press less than half of what you normally would like it's it's so dramatic the effect it has on your strength so maintaining that the ability to maintain that posture on the ground or on your feet is huge and that's why i train it so so hard like i so we're talking a lot of core strength here Yes, core strength, and I hate to use the term core strength because there's no
0: core, right? It's always annoyed me, like the whole "oh, you got to have great core strength." Like people will sometimes focus only on that and forget about the other things, like "oh, we we got to work on your core for
1: like the next few weeks." Like, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, like yeah, Yeah, like maybe not. Your core is not like an inner tube of muscles that's inside inside of your body. Like (laughs) that would be a core. Um, your your midsection a better term? Yeah, like your your trunk. And your posture, I think it covers that, right? So, your abs, your obliques, all of that stuff has to be trained, and that's why, again, the farmer's carries and also zercher carries is a huge you one. No, I
0: think if you if you qualify what you mean by posture, as covering all that. I think that totally makes sense.
1: Absolutely, it it covers all of that because you can't maintain posture with just anterior or posterior, right? You have to have both. So yep. that's the muscles in front yep. of your body and the muscles in the back of your body that create that isometric hold to have a strong locked in posture every drill that i do on the range that i've done for the past 20 some years
0: of my life i can turn into an exercise and it is a fight preparedness fight like drill that is a workout that is an exercise and that's all rifle stuff take the same thing from handgun and take the same thing from from unarmed stuff and turn them all into specific exercises that work a variety of things that would be used in a fight or would very likely be used in a fight.
1: Absolutely. That's what you need to do if you want to build a functional program. And You need to take what specific things that you would like to do and build those into your program. Now, here's a, a concept that I wrote about this in my book, and it's one of the deep concepts that I've, you know, I've been a fitness coach for 15 years and been in gyms for 25 years. So, Developing this concept has been very, it's a very involved process, but when I say that technique that you truly own is only gained through skill conditioning, what I mean is exactly that, like you take the skills that you're going to use and you repeat them in such a manner that you incite the body into adaptation, right? You, You push yourself so much through repetition or volume or intensity that you're actually not only myelinating those neural pathways and developing that skill movement correctly, but you're also developing the cardio and the anaerobic endurance and the muscular uh, ability to, to apply strength into the movement. Like you're developing all of those so that when you do perform the technique later, you've truly earned it and own it. It's not something that you were just taught and you practice a couple of times, but you've done. It's like if you take someone who's boxing, you go into a boxing gym. If you went to a boxing gym and treated it like people treat gun training, you wouldn't be a very good boxer because you go on a range. Even if you're a once a week person, you go on a range and you do some slow repetitions and some fast repetitions of punches and maybe some head blobbing and weaving. Right. You do it and then you go away and you don't do it for a while, you know, and it's just something you do like once every two weeks or, and then every couple months you go and get some more coaching, right? Whereas if you take a boxer that somebody that's fairly new wants to learn how to box, the coach is going to throw them on the bags and you're going to work on that bag nonstop until your arms fall off. And then the coach is going to make you pick your arms back up, stick them back on your body and keep it in the bag some more. And that's how it's going to go for three, four, five, six months before they even pay attention to you. Because at that point, you've proven, number one, that you're willing to work for it and you're worth the coaching time. And number two, by then, you, you, your body is starting to move in a way that it understands leverage and where it's at in space and all that stuff that happens. Proprioceptive awareness and kinesthetic awareness happens as you start to develop and your body understands like how to shift pressure and how to shift weight from foot to foot you only develop those awarenesses through repetition, repetition, repetition. And so we're talking about millions of reps, right? Of how many times you would hit the bag as compared to thousands of reps with, you know, gun training. So if you take these and turn these into a real skill conditioning workout where you're putting in reps and reps and reps and reps, and you're doing it in a way that's creating fatigue and it's creating, you know, maybe you're, you're getting some muscular failure in there and, that kind of stuff is what's going to help you own that technique, just like a fighter would train, that exact way.
0: It's funny. I thought of a couple of examples there. Uh, when I, I used to do boxing right before I went in the Marine Corps, I'd go to a boxing gym in the middle of the ghetto, man. And uh I, was, I had that 1986 Toyota pickup, you know, stick shift. And this dude would make me call me champ all the time, you know. And I, I would he made me throw jabs. I remember one day like he. I graduated up to the bag. Like, he made me just do workouts. Then one day, I finally got to hit the bag. I was so excited. Like, he's going to show me all these punches and, like, everything else and combos. No. I threw jabs for, like, over an hour straight. You know, it's like, when the light turns green, throw jabs. When it turns red, you can chill for a second. It didn't stay red long. So I threw jabs so much, I get back in my truck to leave after I thank him for killing me. And I get in my car, my truck, put it in reverse, hit the clutch. My left arm just doesn't work. Get It is done. It does not work at all. So I'm trying to run the wheel with my right hand, drive with my knee, but then I can't hit the accelerator. Then I gotta switch knees, and I gotta hit the clutch to change gears. And I'm just like grinding gears, trying to drive home just because I only have one hand and it doesn't work. And I didn't have a good technique for driving my car. But man, I got better at my jab. I missed that though. That, that was that was a, a good feeling. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a fond memory. Two nights ago, I'm watching a video on my phone. There's a Marine drill instructor yelling at this poor little junior ROTC guy. These guys wanted a taste of, like, Marine recruit training. And my wife hears me. hears a video. She's, she's like, what are you watching? I was like, this drill instructor is destroying this poor JROTC guy. He was going from order arms, where the rifle is down by his right side, and he brings it up to a port arms, to the muscles up to by his left shoulder, and he switches hands. It's just a, a basic, you know, close order drill movement that people out there listening may be familiar with some of them. He was screwing it up. So, this drill instructor was just destroying him on it. So, uh, this drill instructor was content. And I've seen it's happened to me many times in my life. And I've seen it when I was working at Paras Island and when I was going through Paras Island through recruit training. And it's a technique that I use many times when people were doing things wrong. Again, you know, do it again right now. Do it again right now. Do it again. Like, this drill instructor was there for like six minutes, just having this guy, as soon as he got to port arm, back to order arm, back to port arm, back to order arm for like ever. And just totally content, yelling the whole time. And the kids, like, I, sir, every time. He dressed that thing up They get to the point where he was at muscle failure, you know, of just lifting that rifle up. He was done. It didn't look like it was that hard, but if you just, if anybody out there listening, if you stick your index finger out right now and you lift that up and then you put it down or two fingers and you want to do flutter kicks with your fingers, one finger up, alternating like scissors back and forth. I have experienced this in my life with a drill instructor yelling at me to do flutter kicks with my fingers to where my hand reaches muscle failure. I don't care what it is that you're doing, how simple it is the first time you do it. If you do anything enough times in sequence, in repetition, without stopping, your muscles are going to want to stop working, and you're going to be really good at that later. It works. It's interesting that what you said, though, about if we took handgun training and trained like boxers, or if we, we wanted to be a boxer, but we took what we do in defensive training to boxing and just did it rarely, kind of like a lot of us do with, with firearms. I totally agree. And uh, thinking about it like that is, I mean, how proficient are we and how proficient could we really be if we really train like boxers and we train with handguns in that way or self-defense in that way? Mm -hmm. However your capability is right now, there's some guys out there on YouTube and on Instagram who are really good, and they're going to wake up today and train like boxers, and then tomorrow, and then the next day. And some of us that can't do that every day, you know, we're, we're pretty good. We're better than people who don't train but there's somebody else out there that is trained like a boxer. You know, who's going to win when we meet.
1: Yeah. If you take, take a pistol drill where you are standing and you in a very hurried fashion, drop to prone and get in position and take a shot. That's something that you can do several times on a range, but rarely, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone go out and take, even if it's an unloaded handgun and you dry fire, which is probably recommended if you're going to reach mus- muscular fatigue, let's do 10 reps per side, four sets of that, right? So you're going to do 40 drops per side, right? Per side. So talking about 80 drops, if you really did that, if you sat there and, you know, and you got, it's kind of like that's more functional than doing a bunch of burpees and box jumps, right? And you're going to get- it directly applies. Yeah, it directly applies what you're doing. You're dropping into position, snap a dry fire, back up, rack it drop into position on the other side, snap a dry fire, back up, rack it, and go as fast as you can doing it properly, doing it correctly, changing levels correctly, not breaking your posture, not having terrible form and putting yourself in, you know, bad positions where you could be knocked over with a gust of wind, maintaining stability and mobility and strength throughout the movement, always having yourself positioned in, you know, a strong position. That's serious rep building right there. Yes, it is. I've done similar workouts like that
0: before in my life, whether it's in my garage or out on the ground somewhere, there's uh, some drills that I do in class that are designed to get people to understand that there should be a sense of urgency and changing levels and using cover and using different positions, fighting around cover. And as we build up to that, we do a lot of reps of some things that are, I mean, legs are worn out. People are getting cramps. People are, they're getting a little wobbly when they get back to standing position because their thighs are burning so much. They got definitely some serious muscular fatigue from changing levels. And These people, every single time, I almost, like, apologize. I'm like, look, I know that sucked. They're like, dude, that was awesome. Like, And we didn't really even do anything cool. We were just, like, changing positions and shooting, but we are doing it very rapidly and over and over and over again. And then when they see how that builds back into use of cover and fighting around cover and moving from position to position and being explosive, they're like, yes, I get it. That totally makes sense. And if I wasn't so tired from doing that before... I think I'd be a heck of a lot faster at it. Definitely agree. Of course you do. All right. A lot of good stuff. So if somebody's out there listening in podcast world and they're like, you know what? This stuff sounds pretty cool. I'll do some exercises like that. You know what? And I like to shoot guns and train for fighting and all that stuff. I do want to be well-rounded, if you will. What's some good resources for people out there? You know, they can go to a gym. They can go get a trainer. Not all trainers are created equal. Vark, did I ever tell you about my my YMCA trainer That I, when I signed up for the YMCA a, a year or so ago that I, I got a, uh, a free three meetings with a with a personal trainer? Did I tell you about that? No, but I can only imagine. Awesome. All right. So I, I'll tell you now. Even if, I, if you said yes, I was still going to tell the listeners. So I go in there with this guy. He's like, uh, oh, man, nice to meet you. And he's like, I don't know, 20 years old, 21, 22 or something like that. And then, you know, I've met some pretty, pretty young men and women out there who are really smart. You know, who really know what they're doing in, in a lot of things. And I'm not saying that there's not any young people out there who aren't great personal trainers. But this cat was like, all right, so what do you want to give me this big, long interview? And we're not even going to work out today. I was really bummed because we weren't going to work out our whole first session. And I was going to use a, one of my three. We were just talking to this guy. So he did like a body fat check and like all his other stuff. And we did the interview. And he's like, well, what exercises do you really just not like to do? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, is there any exercises that you just don't like to do? I was like, I don't like to do any exercises. And he <laughs> looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, no, I, I, I don't really enjoy any exercises. And he was like, well, why are you here? I'm like, because I do all kind of stuff that I need to do that I don't love to do. But it's something that I that I need to do. And I, I understand I need to do it. I, I make myself do things I don't like to do all the time. Like, this is that's why I'm here. And I was like, why do you ask me what exercise I don't like to do? He's like, that way I can stay away from him. I was like, look, man, don't take offense to this. And I'm sorry. I love you but you're probably not going to be the trainer for me because the trainer for me would be like, what exercise do you not like to do? And whatever I tell him is the one he's going to make me do every single day until I love doing it, until I own it. Right? It just blew my mind that this guy was going to, to keep me from being uncomfortable. He was going to avoid any exercise or any strength training or anything that I just did not enjoy or I didn't like to do. What do you think about that as a, as a trainer
1: yourself? I think both approaches are weird, but I get what you're saying for sure. Like if avoidance of what is uncomfortable is your trainer's, you know, main method, that's probably not a very good Well, trainer. there's tons of
0: people who probably dig that. That's just not for me. I, I want to I conquer everything that I suck at.
1: You're not going to have adaptations without, without challenging the body and challenging the mind. Uh, that's you know you don't adapt to something unless there's enough pressure put on the body to have to adapt that's the whole thing about stimulus adaptation like it has to be enough pressure enough stress in particular it has to be enough stress to force the body to adapt to be able to handle it better and if you don't do those things it's there is no adaptation and then there's no change that's why you see people who go to work out and you're like, how long have you been doing this? And they're like, oh, I've been here like four years. And it's like, you don't really look like you've had a lot of progress. And, and And I'm not being mean, but I'm just saying like, are you really getting the ROI on your time? You know, because it doesn't seem like you're challenging and causing enough stress to create the adaptations, the changes that you want. And so there's that balance there, right? And so a properly periodized program is going to look at you know, ways to do that, but then not overstress you and not cost too much of sacrifice in the other qualities and the characteristics physically that you want to have, too. So that's where people need to go. They need to look for a coach that's able to talk that language of periodization and recovery and not sacrificing too much of one thing to gain in another thing and understanding that. All of these different adaptations, these different characteristics need to be balanced together. And if they can speak that language off the start, then that's probably a good start. If they can't and they're saying things like, well, let's avoid the things you don't like, then that means they just want you to be happy and keep paying them money. And you can be happy and they can be happy and everybody's going to be happy, right? But you're not going to get adaptations and change with a program like that. So if
0: we take the idea of what we do in firearms training... You know, anybody out there who's taken a class, whether it's firearms or if it's, you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, whatever it is, with a good instructor, they likely understand the value of good training with a professional trainer, somebody who knows what they're doing, not somebody who who got a certificate online or, or, you know, just like Insta Famous, but like a legit person who, when you get to this person, you will recognize, wow, that was good training. This person knows what they're doing. And I know it. Every time I start to undertake something new, you know, I go to a trainer. Like, I, I started playing golf again. And before I swung my first club again, I went to a golf pro. That's, that's kind of a lie. I wouldn't play like one game with my uncle. I went to a golf pro to, to fix me because I value a professional who does what it is that I want to do every single day to evaluate me and get me on the right path before I start creating bad habits and I screw something up or I get injured or something like that. So, anytime I jump into something new, I will find some formal instruction for it. And, and try to learn how to do it because I, you'll learn so much more and you'll learn things you didn't even know you needed to learn. So if we apply that same attitude to fitness, which I don't think a lot of us do, I know I don't, and I, I know a lot of my friends don't, people that I, and acquaintances people that I know don't, they just will watch something online or they'll read something and they'll go do this workout thing. So they're not actually getting anybody with a tailored program for them for whatever their goals are. They're just kind of going at it alone, kind of like if they were just training with a handgun based on what they saw on YouTube you're going to get results, but you're not going to get the great results and you're not going to get the whole ROI that you could be getting if you'd went to a professional, somebody who does it for a living. So I say all that just to hand something over to you, Varg, to say, you know, as a professional and then the person who knows the most about this and is the most available in doing this for people, for people that I care about, I've, I've turned a few people on to you, people that I care a lot about that are, you know, close to me in my life. I'm like, hey, Vark can really help you out and reach these goals that you want. So, where can people find you if they're interested in, in getting a professional to help them out and doing some remote stuff with you, which will be a lot more beneficial than just reading and going on YouTube.
1: Uh, they can find me on my website. And of course that's vargfreeborn.com. And it's, it's pretty easy. I get some programs laid out there. The biggest thing that I, that I want to say is that look for a coach that speaks the language. Don't look for a coach that has the presentation in the show because that's I recently encountered a, a coach in, in quotations there that is like, yeah, I started in this fitness world in 2014, which is six years ago. So he's six years in the business and he's had one great coach and now he knows everything and he knows the best way to do things. And, you know, and the guy is of superior physical fitness and he looks phenomenal. Right. So he's going to sell. He's going to sell based on how he looks, but his actual coaching knowledge is limited. He's been in one method and one system and probably under one primary coach and has only learned one way of doing things. And that person is going to be limited because they're probably, I would guess, genetically predisposed to be, you know, physically awesome the way they are. And some people just get the cards for genetics, man. And it's true. Like it, it is absolutely true. Some people are genetically predisposed to just respond to training phenomenally. And some people are hard gainers and hard changers, and they just got to work and work, and you have to optimize. It's not even so much hard work. You have to optimize, and that's where coaching knowledge really comes in. That's where you want someone who has some experience with powerlifting, has some experience with bodybuilding, has some experience with CrossFit and functional training, has some experience with fight training, so that they can look at a cross section of things and see ways to optimize you outside of just one small toolbox. So, you know, if you come to see me, great, I'll take care of you. But if you don't look for a coach that speaks a broad language that has a very big vocabulary in terms of methods and not so much in terms of like what I do is the best and look at my abs and you can have abs like mine. My best coach that I ever had in my entire life and 25 years of training was a fat silver-haired guy that that chewed on a cigar all day. And that guy was actually had been in his prime of a coach, was one of the coaches that coached the USA team when Tyson was on that team. So this guy had some coaching creds behind him. Like he had coached some champs, he was a great, you know, he's a great fight coach, but you look at this guy and he didn't look like he could fight, he didn't look like he knew anything, but that guy produced champions, right? So It's about what the person knows and what their experience is and where their skill sets at. Where's your experience? If you go to see someone who's only done one thing and the world is full of coaches who join a gym now, you know, a functional fitness gym. And in a year or two, they become a coach and now they're pros. Right. And that's just not how it used to be. You know, you used to have to put time in and learn different systems and become a trainer that could apply different methods to somebody because everybody's different. Everybody responds to different rep ranges. I have different parts of my body that respond to different rep ranges. My chest and pec muscles don't respond the same way my quads do. I can't train them exact same way. So you get these template programs and they work for a little bit, but then you're going to stall. And that's where you need a coach that knows different methods. So no matter where you go, just look for somebody that speaks the language.
0: You know, we see the exact same thing in the farms world. There's a lot of them, and and I'm not, and I, I love it at the same time because I, I like having a lot of little ambassadors out there, teaching weapons handling, teaching safety, teaching people how to shoot guns uh, at a basic level. But I, but it's, it's when they step out of their lane that it gets scary. There's a lot of folks out there that just got into guns that I I saw on Instagram that either I was involved with them in some way or, or something and they didn't know anything, but then a year and a half goes by, two years, and now they're selling classes and they're an instructor. And can you be teaching stuff after a year of doing something, two years of doing something? Sure. But the amount of things that if you're honest, and even if you have the understanding that there's a lot of things that you're missing right now, because I mean, there's just a lot of things that come with, with time, it Just it's just so much to absorb in such a short amount of time. I've been making 11 with a gun in my hand for 22 years, and I'm still figuring out stuff all the time that i I was wrong about, or, or things that are that are new, uh, new ideas, and even changing my way of thinking about things. So I, I can't imagine. You know, I, I thought when I when I first started teaching guns, and I was just kind of I was made to do it. I was it was my orders in, in the Marine Corps. I thought I had it all figured out. A year into this, two years into this. Now I look back and I didn't know anything. So if we stay in our lane or, you know, if that coach out there that's been doing this for a couple of years can probably tell you how to be safe doing some stuff, can probably tell you how to do a few things, can probably help you out with some stuff, but going for them for full programming and for your full understanding of whether it's fitness or a defensive lifestyle and, and being the armed citizen that, that you should be, I'm not sure I'd go to that person who's, who's pretty new for that. You know, maybe a little advice here and there, uh, take some brand new shooters to them kind of thing. But, uh, that's about it just depending on how their presentation is and if they stay in their lane or not. So that's something that I look
1: for in any kind of trainer. Absolutely. I agree. And as a trainer, you want to try to get out there. It's like, I have a, a narrow lane of experience when it comes to fighting. And my experience happens to be very squarely in the criminal violence world. And, but I, venture out and have spent hundreds and hundreds of hours with law enforcement and military instructors and learning those different methods, learning different methods of CQB, because taking that from my personal experience and then transposing some of that information over, it just broadens my toolbox. The experience part is important. I think it really has to be there. I think there has to be some kind of foundation And then also broadening of the toolbox yeah the
0: uh, the it's almost exactly the uh advice i give to people who are like hey uh, i've been teaching a little bit and you know i want to grow and be a better instructor what should i do i'm like dude do what you're doing stay in your lane but you should always be trying to widen your lane constantly and hopefully that's what everybody out there listen to this podcast is which is still gunfighter cast for a few more episodes and it will be Gunfighter Cast until the end of this month, and then we'll switch over to be in the MagLife Podcast. So look for a new graphic on iTunes. Still the same podcast, your same two hosts that you you love so much. At least I hope you do because we love you. Don't you love them, Vark Yes, I, I I love them. All right, it's it's hard to get emotions sometimes out of Vark, so I gotta I gotta I gotta get it every once in a while, right? But no, we appreciate you listening and join us for another episode of Gunfighter Cast. As we get closer to it, uh, I'm going to roll out the new graphic whenever we get it. If anybody's got any cool ideas, would love to see them. You guys can reach out to us anytime. I'm Shaw at gunmagwarehouse.com. Uh, varg, what email do you, you like to use for uh, email contacts? Uh,
1: varg at onelifedefense.com.
0: All right. Um, so hit us up with anything. We've got uh, some good discussions happening in in some of the, uh, the shows out there on the MagLife blog where these podcasts are put up. So join the discussion out there. And as always, we love questions and requests and uh, things to talk about and new ideas for topics or things that you care about. Uh, so those are always welcome. And if you do enjoy the show and you get something out of it every time you listen to it, or at least maybe once you got one thing out of it, that's fine. Go leave us a, a good five-star review on iTunes or one of the other places out there. If you think that you're mad at us and you, you only want to leave a one-star review or a four-star just go ahead and don't leave a review. I mean, we're five stars only, all right? Don't don't do that to us. It's free, all right? You're welcome. Anyway, thanks for listening, and uh, until the next time, Gunfighter Cast out.